I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We're in the middle of another baseball season, and true blue baseball fans have a lot to be concerned about. There's a looming strike, there are accusations and even admissions of steroid use, there are teams under the threat of extraction. And given the fact that we're only two weeks away from Ozzie Smith being inducted into the Hall of Fame, I find that one of the biggest concerns, one of the hottest debates that baseball fans have is who should get into the Hall of Fame. I mean, with the modern technology, better bats, balls that fly farther, how do you compare today's players with yesterday's players? It used to be that the standard assumption was that if you hit 500 home runs, you automatically got into the Hall of Fame. But today, Jose Canseco has 462 home runs. And most people would say, well, he's not a Hall of Famer. Used to be 3,000 hits would mean you would automatically get into the Hall of Fame. But today, a player like Wade Boggs, who had 3,010 hits, is a question mark. And some people would say, well, the only way he got that many hits is that he kept in shape and played for 18 seasons. And that's not to mention players like shoeless Joe Jackson, who had a career average of 356, and Pete Rose, who had more hits than anybody in baseball history, and they're not in the Hall of Fame. So I want you to imagine for a moment this morning that some wealthy, eccentric baseball fanatics get together, and they decide, well, you know, the Hall of Fame is not really what it was meant to be. Too many nobodies are in the Hall of Fame. So we're going to establish a new honor society, and we're going to call it the All-Universe Association. It's going to be a really big deal. When someone gets inducted, they're going to get $500 million. They're going to get a home in Palm Springs. They're going to get unprecedented media coverage. They're going to get some all kinds of extra gifts as well. But these wealthy, eccentric baseball fanatics also establish some entrance requirements for the All-Universe Association. The basic condition is you have to have played baseball for at least five years, so no rookie will get in. And beyond that, there are simply two requirements. Requirement number one, the player must play his entire career without making a single error. Not even one. No throwing errors, no fielding errors, no pass balls, no wild pitches, no box. He never gets picked off base, and he never gets thrown out stealing. Error-free ball is requirement number one. Requirement number two is the player must bat a 1,000. He must get a hit every time up to the plate. Not one fly out, not one strikeout, not one fielder's choice. He must hit safely every time. Those are the two requirements to get into the All-Universe Association. But the benefits are great. $500 million dollars home in Palm Springs, all the endorsements and commercials you can imagine. Now, imagine you're watching ESPN, the guy's interviewing Alex Rodriguez. I'm assuming he's the best player in baseball because he just, he's, he's the one who signed 10 years for $252 million. So he gets the most money. So the interviewer says to A-Rod, you're having a, a very good year, and you're establishing a great career. Do you have any career goals? And A-Rod says, well, my career goals are that I want to get into this new all-universe association. 
I'm determined to do it, and I'm committing the rest of my career to getting in. And the interviewer says, but A-Rod, are you aware of the fact that you have to play air-free ball and bat a thousand to get in? And A-Rod says, yes, and I'm working very hard to do that. And the interviewer says, but A-Rod, according to my statistics, this year alone you're only hitting 297 and you already have five errors. And even if you get a hit every time up for the rest of your career, it's mathematically impossible for you to get into the All-Universe Association. And A-Rod says, don't confuse me with the facts. When I set a goal, I achieve it, I am going to get into the All-Universe Association. And the interviewer says, there you have it, folks, from Texas Stadium and the camera fades to black. And the reporter walks away saying to himself, A-Rod's got his head in the sand. He's dreaming an impossible dream. Because you see, with those requirements, nobody could get into the All-Universe Association. Even the greatest players of all time. I can only find two players who have ever gone one season without committing an error. Steve Garvey and Yogi Berra. One problem, the year Steve Garvey made no errors... He only batted 284. And to my knowledge, no player has ever gone two consecutive seasons without making an error. You know what the batting average record is for a single season? 1894, Hugh Duffy hit 438. Not bad. But that same season, Hugh also committed 27 errors. Even the superstars of all time have fallen short of the standards of the All-Universe Association. You say, well, Dan, where are you going with this? Why are you talking to us about baseball statistics? Well, I say that because God has an All-Universe Association. He calls it heaven. And it exceeds 500 million in a home in Palm Springs. And the Bible says you only have to do two things to get there. There are only two requirements for heaven. Number one, you have to live your entire life without making a single error. Not even one. A sin-free life. Not one sinful thought, sinful word, sinful reaction, sinful deed. Not one sinful decision. No errors. That's requirement number one. Requirement number two is that you have to bat a thousand. You've got to hit the ball on the positive side every time up. You have to have a continuous display of perfect righteousness all life long. An unblemished flow of love toward God. An altruistic display of love to all people all the time. Every conversation, every interaction, every interchange with human beings must be the full righteous expression of righteousness. Every time out, in every minute of every day, you live. That means you must express righteous love, righteous counsel, righteous reactions, righteous feelings. Every thought and word and deed that flows from your heart and your mind and your lips must be righteous altogether all the time. Those are God's two requirements. Now, when a human being lives up to those 
those requirements, when he lives his entire life error-free, totally without sin, and on the positive side, he hits the ball safely every time, expressing perfect righteousness, then God will welcome him into heaven. And God will say, that's incredible. Well done. I owe you heaven. You've earned it. I've set my standard and you kept it. You have reason to be proud. You're incredible. But, on the other hand, if a person commits one error, if a person doesn't express perfect righteousness every time out, then it becomes mathematically impossible to achieve God's standard for heaven. And so once you have committed one error, to continue to strive for the prize, to continue to strive to meet those requirements, is foolishness. It's folly. And that's really what Paul has labored to show us in the first few chapters of Romans, that no Jew or Gentile has ever lived an error-free life, that no Jew or Gentile has ever expressed perfect righteousness every time out. In chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, there is none righteous. In chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, to paraphrase, he says, Hey, people, give it up. It can't be done. It's impossible. In fact, in verse 19, he says that every mouth may be closed. You who are saying, yeah, but I don't have that many errors, Paul says, shh. You who say, yeah, but I'm batting 365, Paul says, shh. You've got your head in the sand. You see, you cannot brag about your record because your record condemns you. You can't make it. It is mathematically, theologically, and categorically impossible. But chapter 3, verse 21 says, But now. God has provided another way. It's apart from the principle of law. It's apart from works. It's apart from your performance. In fact, it's apart from you and it's apart from me. It's according to verse 22. In Jesus Christ, He has taken my errors away. He has taken my sin away. He has provided what verse 24 calls redemption. He has paid for my sin. He has provided what verse 25 calls propitiation. He has satisfied the wrath of God so that I am now sin-free in the eyes of God. And not only has he taken away my errors, but secondly, he has given me his batting average of a thousand. I get his righteousness. Verse 24 says, I am justified. That is, declared righteous. I have what he calls in verse 21 and 22, the righteousness of God. So he gets my errors, I get his batting average. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness. And how does that happen? Chapter 3, verse 28 says, We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. When I abandon my own record and my own righteousness and my own performance and trust in Jesus Christ, then He makes me acceptable before a holy God. He makes me qualified for heaven. Now, Paul, being a former Pharisee, knows well the minds of Jewish readers. And so he knows at this point in time, they're thinking, well, what about the old-timers? Didn't some of the old-timers make it by works? Didn't some of the old-timers make it by performance? And maybe you've asked that question as well. 
Have you ever asked the question, how did people in the Old Testament get saved? How did people before the cross of Jesus Christ ever get saved? Did they get saved by keeping the law? Well, that's the same question that's being asked here. What about the heroes of the past? What about a guy like Abraham? He was the patriarch and the founder of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 41.8 says he was the friend of God. Surely he got in on his record. Jewish writings indicate that opinion of him. The prayer of Manasseh says, Thou, O Lord, hast not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. The book of Jubilees says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. You see, in the Jewish community, Abraham was a superstar. They had retired his number. It was hanging up there somewhere over right field. And they were sure that he had gotten into heaven. He had gotten into the, the all-universe association on the basis of his record. And so Paul says, well, let's take a look back and see. Let's take a look back at Abraham and see what we can find out about him. And that look back really encompasses all of chapter 4. And he's also going to interject an illustration of David in verses 6 to 8. And in doing so, he kind of covers both sides. Abraham is an Old Testament saint. David is an Old Testament sinner. Now this morning, I just want us to focus on two things as Paul looks back at a couple of old-timers. Number one, he's going to tell us how they were justified. And number two, he's going to focus on when they were justified. Or to look at it another way, he's trying to eliminate the two crutches that Jewish people tend to lean on, the, the two statistic areas that they would look at and say, that's how Abraham got in. And so what he does is he deals with his righteous deeds in verses 1 to 8, and then his religious ritual in verses 9 to 12. First of all, righteous deeds in verses 1 to 8. Notice verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? What has Abraham found out about this subject of justification? Now, we know he was justified. We know he was declared righteous because God called him my friend. The question is, did Abraham get that justification by faith or did he get that justification by works? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If Abraham got justified by works, then he has a reason to boast. And Paul's assertion in chapter 3, verse 28, that we're justified by faith apart from the works is wrong. And Paul's assertion in chapter 3, verse 27, that boasting is excluded, is wrong. If Abraham got in by his works, then he's going to be strutting all over heaven, and rightly so. But Paul is quick to answer that notion. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see, Jewish, Jewish writers may be boasting about Abraham, but Abraham is not doing any boasting of his own. Verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul says, let's go back to the Old Testament Scriptures. And he goes back to Genesis chapter 15, and he quotes from there. Now, Abraham was called by God when he was in the city of Ur. 
The city of Ur was an ungodly city, a pagan city. They worshipped idols, and Abraham was in that city. He was an ungodly man worshipping idols when God called him. Now, sometimes we get the impression God looked over the earth to see if he could find the most righteous guy, and he picked Abraham. That's not the case. Abraham was a pagan idol worshipper when God came to him. Now, we can say some positive things about Abraham. When God called him, in Ur and said him, told him to leave, he left. When God didn't tell him where he was going, Abraham kept going. Wherever he went, he built an altar to the Lord, sacrificed to God, prayed to God. He let Lot choose the land he wanted. When, when Lot got, got captured, he went and delivered Lot. He had a lot of what we would consider good works. But when Abraham was an old man, in fact, when he was 85 years old, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, God said to him, I want you to look at the stars, Abraham, because your descendants will be like the stars in number. And Abraham's response was that he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, that's the first time the word believe appears in the Bible. How was Abraham justified? It wasn't on the basis of his obedience in leaving Ur. It wasn't on the basis of his sacrifices. It wasn't on the basis of the kindness that he showed to Lot. It was on the basis of trusting God for the impossible. Abraham believed God, and it says God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That word reckoned or counted or imputed is an accounting term. It's used 41 times in the New Testament, 35 of those times by Paul, 19 times it appears in the book of Romans, and 11 of those times is right here in chapter 4. It means to put something into the account of someone else. And what is it that God put in Abraham's account? Righteousness. Abraham had no righteousness of his own. Now he has the very righteousness of God put into his account. And how did that happen? By faith. And then Paul goes on to make sure that this is clear in verse 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but is what is due. When you work all week on Friday, your employer gives you a check. And when he hands you that check, you don't say, Oh, you really shouldn't. You see, if he doesn't give you that check, you march into his office and you demand it. On April 14th, when you finally sit down to do your taxes, do you try to convince the IRS that your paychecks are gifts? No. You see, when you work, you get a wage. And that wage is not a favor. It's an obligation. It's due. He owes it to you. And then Paul says in verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now, who does God declare righteous? Three conditions are given in this verse, captured in three words or phrases. The first one I want you to notice is the word ungodly. Does your Bible say he justifies church members, religious people, good people? No, ungodly. Now, why does God justify ungodly people? 
because that's all there is. You see, he doesn't come and justify semi-ungodly people. And that's why I would say to you this morning, until you realize that you are ungodly, you cannot be justified. And then the second phrase I want you to notice is the one that says, the one who does not work. You've probably heard the saying, he got his money the old-fashioned way, he earned it. Well, that slogan doesn't apply to salvation. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You see, we got our condemnation the old-fashioned way. We earned our condemnation. But when it comes to salvation, whether it's old-fashioned or new-fashioned, we always get it the same way, and that's as a gift. We do not work. It's for the one who does not work. So you have got to abandon your works in order to be justified. You've got to stop striving. You've got to stop working. In fact, when it comes to salvation, the work that you do is not helping you. It's hurting you. There was a sign in an uh, auto repair shop. It said, labor, $15 an hour. If you watch, it's $18 an hour. If you help, it's $22 an hour. If you worked on it first and then brought it in, it's $30 an hour. See, that's God's policy. You've got to stop. You've got to cease. You've got to give it up. You've got to stop working on it yourself. And then the third phrase or word I want you to notice is that word, believes. Believes. Because that's all we've got left to do. I recognize that I'm ungodly. I stop trying to work my way to God. And I believe in Him. And what's the result? God's righteousness is put to my account. Great, great verse. And then, while we're on the subject of Old Testament heroes, Paul throws in the example of David. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. David also found that God reckons righteousness to us apart from works. And then he quotes from Psalm 32. In verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now this psalm was written after David's sin with Bathsheba. And in that episode, David broke the last five commandments. Murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and coveting. And yet after doing all that, David could say, I am blessed. That word means I am happy. Why? Because he tells us here, my sins are, notice, forgiven, they are covered, and they are not reckoned to me. And how does God do that? Last phrase in verse 6, apart from works. You know, when you think about it, the sins that you have committed in the past are never really gone. I mean, when you look at a star through a powerful telescope, you're not really looking at that star the way it is now. You are seeing that star the way it was many years ago. The light that you're seeing has taken many years to travel to your eyeball. 
In fact, if you could go out to a point in the universe as far away from Earth as the star Sirius, and if you could zoom in with a powerful enough telescope to see the actions on Earth, and you focused in at your own life, you would see the things that you were doing nine years ago. And they would be live. We think about this. If we could develop a way to get out there far enough with a powerful enough telescope, we could go out there and look back and see if O.J. really did it. Dr. Irwin A. Moon said, Everything you have ever done, you are still doing. The ghost of your past haunts the universe. Just keeps going. But David, with all his sin exposed, with all his sin on the table, could say, I am blessed. Why? Because my sin is forgiven. That Greek word means to send away. It's, it's a word Jesus used in Matthew 13 when he sent the multitude away. It means to separate. God has separated you from your sin. And secondly, my sin is covered this is the only time that word is used in the New Testament. It's really taken from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's an Old Testament concept of the blood of the sacrifices covering the sins of the people. And what he's saying is, your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's been paid for. And then he says, my sin is not reckoned to me, and that's that same accounting term. It's not put to my account. It's not on the record. See, Abraham shows us the positive side of justification. David shows us the negative side of justification. Abraham shows us righteousness put to our account. David shows us sin taken out of our account. Abraham illustrates the phrase by faith. David illustrates the phrase apart from works. And when you put them together, you get the whole picture. God takes sin out of my account. And in that place of that, he puts his righteousness. God takes my errors out and he puts in his batting average, a thousand. And so using Abraham and David as examples, Paul shoots down religious deeds as a means of justification. And then secondly, he goes after religious ritual in verses 9 to 12. You say, well, surely there are some works that are important. Surely there are some things that I need to do that are necessary. Surely there are some religious rituals that are, that are necessary for salvation. In the early church, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Men came from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You can't be saved unless you first get circumcised. And so in the early church, there was a big debate about the relationship between circumcision and salvation. Today we still have that debate. It's just kind of changed a little bit. Today people say, unless you're baptized, you can't be saved. Unless you take communion, you can't be saved. And so the question is, what is the relationship between these rituals and salvation? Now notice how Paul deals with that issue. Verse 9, he says, Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? 
Do you have to be circumcised to get this blessing that we're talking about? Or can this blessing actually come on an uncircumcised person? And then he continues in verse 9, For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul says, let's go back to Abraham again. God said he was justified. Now, the question is, was Abraham circumcised or uncircumcised when he was declared righteous? When did it happen? And he answers that at the end of verse 10. He says, not while circumcised, but by, while uncircumcised. If you'll go back in your Old Testament, you'll find in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was declared righteous. Two chapters later, in Genesis 17, he was circumcised. He was declared righteous at age 85. He was circumcised at age 99. So Abraham was declared righteous 14 years before he was circumcised. And that should be the end of the debate. Because obviously, justification is apart from religious ritual because Abraham was justified when there was no religious ritual. You say, well, then what is the point of circumcision? Well, he answers that in the first part of verse 11. He says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Two words there describe circumcision. It's a sign and it's a seal. It's a sign. What's that mean? Well, when you go out here on the highway and you head up towards St. Louis and you see a sign that says St. Louis 100 miles, that sign is not St. Louis. That sign simply points you to St. Louis. That's what a sign does. And that's what circumcision does. Circumcision was a sign that pointed to the covenant God made with Abraham. It was a sign. Secondly, it was a seal. When you go to a notary public, he or she puts their seal on your document that is verifying a transaction. Circumcision was a seal that verified, confirmed the righteousness of faith that already was there in the life of Abraham. And today we can say the same thing about the two rituals we have, baptism and communion. They are signs. They point back to the death of Christ. They are seals. They confirm, they verify the faith that is already in the life of that individual and the righteousness that God has already put in that person's life. They are a confirmation of what is already there. And then we come to Paul's conclusion. Halfway through verse 11, he says, In order that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham which he had while uncircumcised. Now he is here telling us who Abraham is the father of. Now these are fighting words because the question of who can claim Abraham as their father is what the whole issue in the Middle East is about. I mean, the Jews claim him as their father through Isaac, the Arabs claim him as their father through Ishmael, and they're both right. You see, the conflict in the Middle East is really a family feud. It's cousins fighting with each other. Paul straightens them both out in these two verses because he says Abraham is the father of all who believe. 
He's the father of the uncircumcised Gentiles who believe, and he's the father of the circumcised Jews who believe. In fact, verse 12 is kind of a jab at the Jews because, you see, many of them were saying Gentiles need to become Jews first in order to get saved. And Paul says, you Jews need to go back and follow in the footsteps of a Gentile and the footsteps of his faith, that is Abraham, when he was not a Jew, when he was still a Gentile. You need to go back and follow in his footsteps of faith in order to be saved. In order to really have him as your father, you've got to go backwards instead of telling Gentiles they've got to come over where you are. And so the issue is not circumcision. The issue is not religious ritual. The issue is faith. And so Abraham, who the Jews looked to as the father of works, Paul says, no, look at your Bible. He's actually the father of faith. Because he was justified the old-fashioned way, by faith, apart from works. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage of Scripture which takes us back to the Old Testament and shows us how even Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, was saved by simple faith apart from works. And Father, we thank you that that has always been your way and always will be your way. And Father, we rejoice in that today because on our own record, we could never get in. And yet you have put us in the all-universe association. You have put us into heaven on the record of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that that happens by simple childlike faith in him. And we rejoice in that this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.